Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. Hello, I'm Matt Risby and joining me as always via the medium of satellite technology is Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? Yeah, doing very well. Um, I've had a very odd weekend which has involved uh, having to basically be stuck at home, working from home, which I was going to do anyway, but uh, being forced to do it because my car broke down yesterday, but uh, not in a bad way. It basically just stopped working on the drive, which is the more benign way for your car to uh, to die on you but um yeah it's, it's just been very odd mm, it's better than being trapped at home because kathy bates has kidnapped you and smashed your ankles in with a sledgehammer yeah moderately it's, if that if that's the scale we're using it's pretty it's pretty benign anything kind of uh, uh struck you particularly interesting happening in the film world uh this weekend i i kind of had a slow week on news but i did finally catch um, the WTF episode with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, which I thought was very bloody good. Mm, that is very good. It was it was uh, interesting to hear because I don't know why, but in my mind, I kind of built him up as this quite inscrutable sort of person. I think because he stopped doing like DVD commentaries after uh, Boogie Nights, and so mm-hmm. uh, I kind of got the feeling that in the what eighteen years since that happened. He probably has just become a bit of a hermit. So to hear him in a very relaxed conversational setting, you're like, oh yeah, he is still that just like really articulate, funny guy that creates boogie nights. It's just that now he's a bit gruffer and he's got like five kids. Mm, yeah, it was kind of interesting because I, I kind of have my issues with WTF. Um, it seems that if you get Mark Maron in a good mood mm. or with a good guest with like good chemistry, then you get. A, a very good revealing episode uh, and the interesting thing about the Paul Thomas Anderson one is they hadn't met before mm. uh, and by the end of the episode uh, they kind of seemed like firm friends whereas listen to something like the Nick Cave episode and uh, I think you can kind of hear the the, uh, the sound of Cave slowly unsheathing a blade <laughs> the table ready to attack him with and in contrast to the Richard Linklater episode which we've talked about before where Marin kind of cuts cuts him up quite a lot and kind of doesn't let him finish certain thoughts and interjects a bit too much. Whereas in the Paul Thomas Anderson one, it works you know really well. I think that's at least partly because of his various reactions to their work. Because if you hear him talk about Linklater's work, I think because Linklater is so kind of his work is so accessible, it's very easy to kind of um, kind of break into it really with him and talk about. Uh, and he's so kind of laid back. It probably seems. Uh, he probably didn't feel as intimidated talking to him, whereas you can really tell that because uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's films, Paul Thomas Anderson's films are so dense um, by design, and he talks about having to constantly rewatch them, even things that he doesn't like or get. As soon as he finishes watching them, he's like, "Man, I've got to go and watch that and try and figure out what it was about." That's probably why he he felt like he could really he to he didn't want to interrupt him for. Just because he's kind of, uh, yeah, intimidated by his his work. Yeah, and yeah, I felt like that was uh, a pretty good episode. Probably one of his better ones, which is considering he's he's recorded quite a lot of good episodes, including what the internet seems to think is the best episode of any uh, podcast ever. That's quite an achievement. Um, also, uh, I kind of noticed this week, which is 
kind of interesting, and you picked up on it, I saw it on Twitter. Um, someone's picked up that proof of concept film uh, called Leviathan, mm. uh, which for those of you who don't know is a kind of a, a short effects reel, um, a very impressive effects reel uh, film of uh, set in a future where you know lights, faster than light travel is possible but only by harvesting the eggs of giant flying whale creatures. Um, and it's, you know, dazzlingly, brilliantly done. Um, and, you know, as soon as it was kind of seen, um, everyone was like, give this dude a job. And uh, someone has. Yeah, that's one of those sort of kind of internet fairy tales. Every so mm. often something comes along where someone puts something out into the ether, the right people see it, and then it just kind of happens. Which on the one hand is great and kind of contributes to the idea of democratising of media and distribution and everything, but I think also probably just uh, is kind of like a, a punch in the gut for the thousands of other people who have put stuff on Vimeo that hasn't amounted to anything. But yeah, that is a, that is a really impressive short, and I'd be um, very intrigued to see how, uh, how they turn it into a feature. Um, hopefully, at the very least, it'll be just visually quite stunning. Mm. And given that like the shorts has the big kind of uh, uh, bad animal reveal, um, yeah, there's you know it needs to be quite a lot more to the world. Mm. Yeah, definitely. But uh, it's it's such a, a a unique and strange idea that even if it's kind of not great, I think it'll probably be it will just be cool to have someone who has a unique, interesting voice being able to tell a story in their own way. Mm. Um, huge news that I, I know will uh, appeal to both you and I, but probably you more than me, for reasons we'll probably discuss, is The X-Files is coming back. Mm. Yeah, that is, uh, that's massive news that has kind of been building for a while. The rumours started probably about three or four months ago. I know that um, I, I've been listening to and watching along with uh, Kamel Nanjiani's X-Files Files podcast where he goes through the entirety of The X-Files Um two or sometimes three episodes at a time and um, he's been talking about it quite a lot, the rumours that have been kind of building that it was going to come back as a limited series and mm -hmm. uh, he had started to doubt it because there was a uh, there was, I think it was around the TV Critics Association kind of press junkets, there was this kind of talk of like, yeah it seems like it's really going to happen and then nothing and so it seemed to have calmed down so for it to be uh, confirmed is very very exciting even though uh, I have my reservations because The X-Files was, it started off kind of shaky in its first season, then it had sort of three or four um, seasons that were amazing, pretty decent spin-off movie, and then it very quickly slid uh, down in quality after that, uh, and kind of ended in a very kind of mediocre place, produced a pretty terrible spin-off movie, so I'm I'm hopeful that a return to TV would be would kind of be revitalising, but at the same time, it's one of those things where you think, I'm not sure if it can really ruin the legacy of the show because it's already kind of imperfect. Mm. There seems to be a lot of kind of cult TVs coming back. Obviously, Twin Peaks, the big one. Um, I think uh, you know, you know, we know how shameless TV executives are. Mm. Um, do you think they'll be on the lookout for you know? The geek wet dream of Firefly. I I would be very surprised if those conversations aren't happening. I'd be even more surprised if it actually happened because you know everyone on that show is kind of very busy doing various projects, and I think pretty, I'm pretty sure they all hate Adam Baldwin now. So uh, it's probably it'd be probably very difficult to get all of them 
back together. Mm, but maybe uh, they, they can do a South Park and have uh, Adam Baldwin's character revealed to be a kind of paedophile. <laughs> stitch, stitch all his dialogue together with uh, uh, you know bits of his old old episodes and uh, animate his face or just animate a potato. Yeah, just have loads of just grab all of the outtakes and just construct mm. his beat, or or just have it start off with them at his funeral. She's kind of like, yeah, terrible shame that. Anyway, yeah. on to the next adventure. Yeah, he was sodomised by a bull to death. Oh, <laughs> what a way to go. Or, I mean, I know he's not related to them, but they could just get another bull win. I'm pretty sure Billy and uh, and Stephen are not working. Mm, yeah, that's... Uh, or if they are, we'll be in some sort of like very low-budget kind of uh, Christian straight-to-DVD film, mm, which seems absolutely. to be what attracts the, the lower ranks, the, the lower-level Baldwins. Oh, well, don't knock it, Ed. It's a living, you know. <laughs> um, and just before we move on to, to uh, tonight's topic, uh, talking about shameless TV executives, uh, they cancelled Looking this week. Mm. Yeah. Which, which is, is... Uh, bullshit. Well, even though I haven't seen it, but it was great. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was really great. And it just they wrapped up their second season, which was really strong and had some... One episode with the tongue-in-cheek title of uh, Looking for a Plot, which... Huh. Uh, was, uh, I think, partly aimed at people who say that it's aimless and not about anything, but was actually about them looking for a plot in a graveyard, um, uh. Uh, was was really great and one of the best half hours of television I've seen so far this year. But as is the kind of HBO model now, it looks like they're going to give them a chance to wrap it up with a, with a, a film, a TV film, which they gave to um, Hey Ladies of All Things, <laughs> the uh, Stephen Merchant sitcom, which no one watched, but that guy... Uh, end film and it which is you know great because they get to wrap up all the stories and try and think of a, a decent ending for it all but mm-hmm. also does kind of feel like they're twisting the knife for deadwood fans yeah because we're still waiting <laughs> yeah but at the same time you kind of think yeah deadwood was a lot more expensive than a show a kind of naturalistic show set in um, san francisco but you think when they had the sets available they you know they could have put together four hours of content Mm. I think if HBO want to be really cheeky, they can say, "If you want to know how Deadwood ends, read a book." Because you know, <laughs> it's a real place. Some of those people are real. Uh, read so, a book, yeah. or or they just kind of provide a link to the Wikipedia site. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that would be a good thing. Anyway, uh, what are we talking about tonight, Ed? We're talking about uh, creative partnerships, um, which is something that was uh, kind of partly inspired by the news that broke a week or so ago that. Uh, John Williams will not be uh, recording the score for Steven Spielberg's latest film, Bridge of Spies, which I still think sounds like a free-to-play app. Mm-hmm. Apparently is a, is a Cold War thriller. Um, and that's noteworthy because it will be only the third film that he's ever been involved with, uh, that, that Spielberg's ever been involved with as a director that he will not have provided the, sound, the score to because uh, he didn't provide the score for Colour Purple and he didn't pres- uh, provide the score for... Uh, Twilight Zone the movie and so that's a you know a hugely long-lasting 40 year long more than 40 year long relationship that goes all the way back to Sugarland Express uh, and it's not ending but it's kind of one of the more significant parts of Spielberg's career so I thought it'd be interesting to talk about the different ways that those kind of creative partnerships the kind of the big ones and the ones that people don't talk about so much uh, manifest themselves. Mm. And it's interesting with something like a composer is not something you, not two roles, director composer, you would see as being symbiotic. A lot of directors do use the same composers a lot, but it is not 100% a given that that is always 
the person they would go to, but in Spielberg's case, literally every single iconic piece of music that has appeared in his films, that has scored every single iconic moment of his, is for John Williams. So mm-hmm. it is very unusual that they're not working together. Is there any kind of reason why? I mean, is John Williams doing Star Wars? Uh, John Williams is doing Star Wars, but I think it was because he was uh, he was ill. Right. Okay. He he had a he had a, a, a bout of bad health, which apparently has uh, been resolved, but basically meant that he wouldn't have been able to meet the deadline. Mm. Do you think whoever gets in like is going to be the worst job ever? But <laughs> Spielberg will be there going. It's not quite how John would have done it. Uh... <laughs> well, it's uh, I think it's Thomas Newton Howard who's who's pretty good in his own right. So. I think it'll probably do a good job, but I think it'll be interesting watching it and seeing if it has a different tone and different feel, mm. because you kind of get the sense that uh, that even though, like you say, the um, you don't think of relationships between composer and director as being that symbiotic or that close, um, it definitely is for them. Famously, um, well, obviously you have like Jaws, which would be a very different film without its incredibly iconic music, but. Mm-hmm. Even something like E.T., where Spielberg cut the ending in one way, and they started hearing the score, and he recut the ending to better suit the music that uh, John Williams was create was creating, which is not something you hear about all that often, but is it, I think is kind of instrumental to what makes the the whole kind of escape and E.T. going home thing work. Mm. Um, that that's a very very close relationship, and there's a level of there's clearly a level of of trust there and of knowing that the other person knows the, the tone that you want for your for your work and what uh, what you want for the final product. So I think uh, starting with a, basically an entirely new relationship, even if it's only for for one film, uh, is probably going to be interesting for certainly interesting for Spielberg. Mm. When it comes to composers as well, there is a lot of relationships that are long and ongoing that really do feed in. Uh, to the aesthetic, um, someone like thinking about like David Lynch and Angelo Badalamenti, mm-hmm. um, or David Cronenberg and Howard Shaw, uh, or uh, Hitchcock and Bernard Herrmann. Um, I think that you know when there are kind of big uh, iconic moments you think of, it's very difficult to separate the music from from the uh, the image. That yeah, that's very true, and it's also interesting when those relationships end to see the effect that it has because. Um, I'm sure there's other factors that contributed to like Hitchcock's later films not being as interesting or as good as his early ones, but I think his, his, the end of his you know, fairly acrimonious end of his relationship with Bernard Herrmann probably didn't help. They didn't have someone that kind of incredible and talented to lean on um, mm-hmm. and someone who would do great work in the years ahead. You know, He would still do um, work for De Palma and obviously the, the Taxi Driver score you know, is... Uh, tantalising to think of what he would have done if he had continued working with Hitchcock. Um, another example that I'm, I always find fascinating is the breakdown of the relationship between uh, Takeshi Kitano, who's one of my um, favourite directors and, and someone I know that you're a fan of as well, and uh, Joe Hisayashi, who was his uh, his go-to composer for pretty much all of his work in the 90s, and then they had a bad falling out, and uh, they haven't worked together since uh, Kikajiru, and mm. uh, and there seems to be a kind of a drop off in his work since then, which um, I've always found quite interesting. Mm. With a composer, um, like you would think uh, that it's not that important, 
but also maybe it's just having that comfort zone of having someone you know doing what you want and knowing that there's that shorthand there Mm. um like you'll notice that i think probably the most um recurrent relationship between director and anyone is probably director and editor Mm -hmm. Um, and they say you make a film three times you write it you shoot it and then you cut it and i think i remember hearing when when sally menka died who was uh quentin tarantino's kind of long time editor he was kind of absolutely distraught as though that's you know a relationship that he relied on and that he drew comfort on and that like there's a huge uh kind of trust uh, uh relationship there it strikes me as that kind of comfort being found in in a in a in a kind of a small group of regular crew members would extend to composer just naturally mm and and certainly in the case of uh, Menke, it was definitely a a case that he had complete and total trust with her built up over years because they were saying that for, even though he's someone who's clearly very exacting in what he wants in a film in the way he composes his shots and in his choice of music and things like that he's someone who knows exactly what he wants but with the case of Sally Menkig reached the point where he was he would basically just send her the footage and be like I, I'm pretty sure you'll know what to do with this mm. um, which is incredible and I think was probably the kind of the one of the closest relationships he had and I think it's yeah that that was one of the things that was very interesting watching uh, Django Unchained which is a film that I really really enjoyed but you kind of wonder how would it been different if um, she had been the one editing it mm-hmm. yeah and it's like one relationship that does change a lot is this direct like and which surprises me more than any other is the relationship between director and cinematographer mm. um, that like you get you know people like Martin Scorsese have, have worked with you know all the greats and that's is that a case of um kind of over-familiarity, or is that a case of you're after a specific thing, you go to a specific guy? I think it's it's probably that, and also cinematographer always strikes me as one of those roles that is so incredibly in demand. Mm-hmm. So you could work with someone earlier in your career who's uh, you know really, really talented, and through your work with them, they get lots and lots of work, and it may reach the point where they can't turn down jobs to kind of work with you all the time. And so you have to try and forge new relationships. I mean, someone like Paul Thomas Anderson, who shot all of his films, except for The Master, with Robert Ellswit, I think, uh, I think all of them. Um, clearly, he likes working with him, and he likes having that um, relationship and that, you know, whatever shorthand they have. And mm-hmm. he likes having someone who's clearly very um, versatile and can, you know, shoot things in very different ways that suit the story. But I think in a lot of cases... Um, cinematographers may have a specific style that they become renowned for and that they bring to everything and, and sometimes that works for some films but sometimes you think mm, I want I want something different I think that someone else can provide that mm. um, is there with some people it's very difficult to think of them outside of a specific relationship well not impossible but is uh, um, kind of harder and what jumps to mind instantly for me are two partnerships. One is Powell and Pressburger. Mm. Uh, the other is uh, Herzog and Kinski, who, when I was sitting down to think about this uh, uh, kind of episode, my wife asked me tonight, you know, what, what are you doing on tonight? And I kind of said, creative relationships. And she said, what, like those two German guys who were trying to kill each other? <laughs> and I was like, well, that didn't instantly spring into my head, but now it has. So we've got her to thank for that. But those two in particular, 
they, all the kind of four constituent parts of those relationships have done amazing things individually, but just the very kind of peak of their work is always embodied in those kind of relationships. Yeah, I think in the case of, I think you can definitely see in the case of Herzog and Kinski, two men who um, sparked off of each other in very volatile ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I think that that spark is what lent their work such power working together is that they could clearly uh, drive each other insane <laughs> and they kind of knew how to press each other's buttons. You know, there's all those, sto- those great stories in My Best Fiend, the uh, documentary Herzog made about his relationship with Kinski where he talks about uh, Kinski being impo- when he was being impossible to work with or he wasn't giving him what he wanted he would just get him really angry until the point where he was exhausted and he would be either more pliant or he would be willing to do something that he otherwise wouldn't do um, and that's kind of an example of a probably quite poisonous relationship um, mm-hmm. at least in terms of their working together I think uh, when they were kind of together and not working together they seemed to get on you know, reasonably well but for some reason uh putting them uh, in a actual creative situation where they have to create work, it, it made them very volatile. But I think that th- whereas uh, like the Powell and Presburger uh, relationship, I think there you can see that example of two very creative people who have different perspectives, they come from different countries, they have different social backgrounds, um, really kind of being able to sound off ideas uh, each other and really inform each other's work in a way that, you know, separately they could do great work, but something about that combination really created magic. Hmm. I've always been really confused by Powell and Pressburger because back then it was, unless it was a specific relationship like um, uh, Gene Kelly and Stanley Donnan, where, where one did the kind of, the more of the kind of the dialogue scenes, the other did the more the choreography, it was very rare for two directors to, to shoot. Uh, I never really understood why Powell and Pressburger did that. No, my my understanding of it is that it varied from film to film. I think Powell was just more of a tech, more of a technician, and that uh, Pressburger was more of a writer. That's why he was the one. I think he was the only one credited with the screenplay, for example, for the Red Shoes, which he won the Oscar for, and Powell didn't. Even though um, I think they were more. Uh, I think they were they were more kind of collaborative than that division would suggest, but I think mm-hmm. I think also it's one of those and uh, those weird things where probably guilds and various uh, uh, awards considerations, or even just you know how do we uh, how do we divide up this workload or how do we accredit this? It, it just gets like really complicated, and they probably just said it's just easier if we say one like with the Cohen brothers, we say. One of us is the producer and the writer, and one of us is the director. Mm. It's interesting you mentioned the Coen Brothers because it got me thinking about: is that a creative relationship that can't be sep- like can't be separated? Like they just they don't they, they you've done the work separately as editor or whatever, and kind of you know I think uh, no, is it just Ethan used to edit a couple of old Sam Raimi films? Uh, Joel, Joel, um, but they you know the, the idea of those two kind of helming or writing a film seems kind of absurd separately. Yeah, I think the only thing I know of that they've done separately since they became, you know, the kind of two-headed director that they are, uh, I know that uh, Ethan Cohen has written plays and short stories separately. 
Mm-hmm. But that's obviously you know a different medium and it's kind of a side thing. And I'm sure he probably runs some of it past Joel. I can I can't imagine that he just uh, writes entirely in isolation and then releases it and then Joel just reads it when he gets in print. Um, mm. That would surprise me very very much. Um, but yeah, that that one I think unless they have you know the mother of all falling outs or um, you know heaven forfend one of them passes away uh, reasonably young. I think it's hard to imagine what it would look like if they worked separately. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, that is a, a kind of an odd one. Um, just kind of bringing it back to Powell and using it as a segue to talk about Martin Scorsese because Powell's widow, uh, Thelma Shoemaker, has edited a good deal of Mr. Scorsese's pictures, um, making that kind of a very long kind of collaborative uh, process and kind of perhaps talking uh, kind of echoing what we were saying about Tarantino and Sally Menke early, uh, sorry, earlier. Scorsese is a very collaborative director in the sense he works with a lot of the same people all the, a lot of the time. I mean, De Niro was his kind of acting muse for a long time. And it's very interesting that kind of, kind of post-Casino, it's been kind of Leonardo DiCaprio. And he's kind of seems to have found someone that would kind of fit the roles of the films he wants to make, plus keep challenging him in new ways. Yeah, and in addition to that, before then, he worked a lot with um, Harvey Dickitel and uh, <laughs> Daniel DeLewis. You know, he's worked with him twice as well. Uh, yeah, I think he he definitely seems to be someone who's always looking for an avatar to represent some version of himself on screen. Certainly, you can see that in um, Jake LaMotta, where he talks about how uh, Raging Bull was kind of him working through his cocaine addiction and kind of wanting to try and attain some sort of grace and I think he probably saw that if he didn't write his, his uh, the way his life was going he'd probably end up like the fat um, Jake Lamassa uh, just uh, quoting Brando lines in a mirror you know mm. I think that he, he definitely found that I think but in, in terms of his like then moving on to younger the younger actor in uh, DiCaprio I think he, there he probably realised that even though he and De Niro you know still good friends and they worked together for such a long time and they probably would work together again given the opportunity and they always talk about how they want to make at least one more movie together I think he probably realized at a certain point that unless he wanted to make movies primarily about old men he was going to have to find someone else who could kind of act as his his the, the person to embody his stories on screen mm. and he, he definitely he, he tried in the 90s to find various people to fulfill that role but uh, it really came something about the uh, passion and the intensity of DiCaprio clearly uh, struck a nerve with what he wants to do. Plus, also, it doesn't hurt that DiCaprio is a much bigger box office draw than mm. uh, than De Niro, who uh, is kind of shambling through the twilight of his uh, his, year, his twilight years. Uh, and he also is someone who, at, at you know, at the point that they started work together, was someone who really wanted to push himself into different roles. I think he probably felt really confined by the idea of being a young teen heartthrob, so that's why he wanted to do things like Gangs of New York and The Aviator, and uh, to, to really push himself, whereas, like you say, uh, De Niro has settled into a very comfortable rut, and mm. very rarely seems to want to push himself, um, and you, you kind of wonder at this point if even Scorsese could knock him out of it. Scorsese could knock him out, you say? No, it's not, if, if he can knock him out of his rut. Oh, I mean, he could probably knock him out, I mean, it'd probably be pretty close. I think De Niro's probably got a lot of residual punching power uh, <laughs> from uh, that film we did with uh, 
Stallone a couple of years ago. Um, have you got any examples of creative relationships uh, that kind of uh, just kind of stopped when, uh, or that, that kind of dissolved in, in a kind of uh, acrimonious circumstances and then neither of the, the kind of participants in that relationship got anywhere near the standards that they'd previously reached? Uh Kind of, I think there's one that you could kind of consider as a as a fringe case would be the relationship between Akira Kurosawa and Toshiro Mifune, mm-hmm. um, because they worked together pretty much constantly for um, twenty twenty something uh, seventeen years uh, between nineteen forty eight and nineteen sixty five, and I think they made they basically made a film a year during that time. They were constantly working together. I think the only film that they didn't work on during that time was um, Ikiru, and uh, they were they did like this great transcendent work, uh, created some of the greatest greatest films of all time. Uh, Mafune provided lots of different performances. He he pushed himself in each one. Sometimes he could be you know a fireball of energy. Sometimes he could be just like the most restrained guy imaginable. And he was a uh, a really and together they they kind of created these these wonderful works of art, and then after Redbeard, where they they had their falling out and didn't reconcile for something like thirty years, um, Kurosawa's career uh, just kind of ground to a halt. Mm. Uh, I mean, he struggled to get projects made, and partly that was because the Japanese film industry was changing a little bit, and it just became harder for him as this kind of elder statesman to get the projects he wanted made. But you kind of wonder if. If he had still kept working with uh, Mifune, if uh, they would have been able to, uh, if those projects would have been easy to make, because he would have had this huge recognisable star, you know, still on board. Mm. And he probably wouldn't have had to go kind of around Capilan trying to get films made, like in Russia, and uh, having Lucas and Spielberg kind of trying to bankroll his films. Um, it would have been quite a different story, I'd have thought. Yeah, it definitely feels like. That relation, the end of that relationship, came at such a point in his career that there's a very sharp break. And even though there may be other factors, it's hard not to look at that and think, yeah, I think the the end of that friendship and of that uh, creative partnership had a, a a profound effect on everything he would do in the subsequent decades. Mm. It's interesting. We were talking a few weeks ago about Clint Eastwood mm-hmm. and how. Uh, Clint Eastwood had uh, similar relationships with um, Don Siegel mainly mm-hmm. uh, and also perhaps uh, to a lesser degree um, fuck why can't I remember his name the guy, uh, Sergio Leone yeah. <laughs> fucking hell Jesus um, but after both of those relationships dissolved through the death of, of both of those two Clint Eastwood kind of carried on their work in a way yeah I think Certainly, in those cases, because he was he was he was a collaborator, but he was also kind of a student of both of them. He was definitely a, a student of of Don Siegel's. I think you know he was that that uh, that he he learned so much from them that he was able to imbue his own films with it. And as he became more confident as a director, and as uh, I think as he demonstrated him as himself as someone who could make films cheaply, and they pretty much all ended up making money, or at the very least. Um, they cost so little that it didn't really matter. Uh, he certainly was able to expand on the work that uh, that he did with them, in, in, mm-hmm. at, both in front of and behind the camera. Um, another example I thought of of someone who uh, didn't make 
as good work afterwards, after a partnership end, was uh, Peter Bogdanovich, who, for his first five or six films, he collaborated very closely with his then-wife, Polly Platt. Um, she was the set designer, but she also helped him write the scripts, often uncredited, and she was a very kind of key force behind the scenes. And after their relationship uh, ended, because he was sleeping with Sybil uh, Shepherd, uh, I think his work kind of started to go downhill quite quite rapidly and then obviously you um get into the whole thing with the his, the girlfriend of his who was who was horribly murdered which mm-hmm. really put the kibosh on his work for a very long time but even before then you could really see that his his work wasn't quite the same wasn't of the same quality after they stopped working together mm, absolutely and then yeah when your life then after that becomes a kind of like tabloid kind of not fast I guess that's a cool way of saying it but like you know when his his work did suffer to the degree that it just wasn't anywhere near um what he was even attempting back in the 70s mm. which is or even just just the first half of the 70s really mm. um kind of bringing it kind of a bit more up to date um here's one for you um Edgar Wright Simon Pegg Nick Frost um as a threesome great Separately, with the exception of uh, Edgar Wright, not so good. Yeah, I think Edgar Wright probably has the advantage in that in that he just doesn't work as much mm-hmm. because he's you know so meticulous and he's a director. So it's just I think harder for him to make more than one film a year, and he he seems to be at a a rate of one film every three years. Um, but yeah, it, because the other two are are working actors and they just kind of have to take any job going, it's harder for them to keep up the quality. But even when they're writing, I think uh, you can really see the what Wright brings to their partnership in Paul, which is a pretty funny film that kind of works, but is also very, very sloppy. And um, you get the sense from hearing conversations about how they work together that Edgar Wright is just a relentless taskmaster. <laughs> he just basically says to them, we're going to write, we're going to have to rewrite, and we're just going to work as hard as possible until this script is as good as possible, until we can fully realise as much of the scenes and the individual shots as we can. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think that because um, because uh, Simon Pegg and, and Nick Frost both kind of come from acting and um, to an extent a writing background, they just don't have that, that keen visual sense that he has. And you can really see, even though Edgar Wright is not credited as one of the creators of Spaced, you can really tell that that show would have been um, wildly different and nowhere near as good if uh, he hadn't been there to kind of help realise what uh, Simon Pegg and Jessica Hines were trying to make. Mm, absolutely. I'm very interested in relationships uh, between kind of writers and directors. Mm. And uh, there are two examples I can think of now, kind of people who kind of came out around the same time, uh, Alexander Payne and Wes Anderson, whose first few films were all co-written with the same people. Uh, Wes Anderson was working with Owen Wilson and Alexander uh, Payne was working with Jim Taylor, um, those two also went on to write the script for Jurassic Part 3 that is a side point um, <laughs> but it's interesting to note that whilst the first three films with both those directors are pretty kind of flawless um, when the relationships changed Wes Anderson then went on to write with quite a few other people Roman Coppola um, I can't remember who you wrote Grand Budapest Hotel with but it wasn't Roman Coppola no, it was um, it was like a friend of his. Uh, the name the name escapes me, but yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, we just oh Hugo Guinness. That's, that's right. The guy you're um, but also Alexander Payne had gone off to write other things. But the quality of Alexander Payne's 
films has kind of dropped off sharply, whereas Wes Anderson's hasn't. Yeah, I think um, Jim Taylor is still reasonably closely involved with um, Alexander Payne's stuff, but he's more in a producing role than he ever was before. Before, I think they were very closely collaborative, and now I think it's a case where their careers have just kind of gone on in uh, sort of different directions, and just by the nature of the fact that Alexander Payne is the director, he's the guy who's on set, he's the guy... Uh, you know, shaping the film as it's made and then probably has a greater say in the editing that their relationship has, has just kind of splintered a lot more. Kind of similar to um, the relationship. There's a there's a great article on The Dissolve from probably about seven or eight months ago um, by Matthew Desson uh, all about the relationship between Billy Wilder and Charles Brackett, who was uh, the, the man who wrote his first... They, they wrote, like, 12 films together, you know, some of... Uh, the great early works of um, of Wilder's career, like Sunset Boulevard, and their relationship started off fairly equitable because they were both writers. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, as soon as uh, as soon as Billy Wilder became a director, the power in their relationship shifted drastically, and it became a point where they were both really talented people who sparked off of each other and were able to uh, inform scripts in different ways, like. Uh, Brackett was really great at dialogue, uh, Wilder was really good at structure, and so they complemented each other well, but as it went along, they just reached the point where they could no longer work together anymore, just because they were both, they both had kind of competing egos, and I kind of get the sense that the same thing happened with, uh, maybe not about egos, but definitely, you know, the power shifts a little bit between them, and uh, that's kind of what happened with Payne and Taylor. I think with Wes Anderson, because he's always been so meticulous and he's always had a very kind of demanding style, I kind of feel like that is one of the main reasons why his work hasn't changed that much, even though his writing partners have. Mm. Um, interesting you should kind of bring up Billy Wilder because after his uh, relationship with Brackett uh, kind of ended, he started a whole new one with IAL Diamond. Mm. And again, he also wrote 12 things with, films with him, so apparently 12 was the magic number, at which point he just got out of there. Yeah, it was like, oh, I'm so superstitious, I don't want to get to 13, so I'll just <laughs> bid them off now. Um, yeah. He just hated bakers, and hated the fact they had their own dozen. Exactly, right? Um, is there any other kind of collaborations you can think of between uh, directors and other, mem- other crew members that have uh, proved to be kind of fruitful? In ter- uh, not in terms of uh, other crew members that uh, me- leaps to mind. Most of my examples that I've written down are, are between um, right uh, directors and actors, mm-hmm. which I definitely feel is is one of those relationships that is the easiest to kind of point to when you know, like Scorsese and uh, and De Niro and DiCaprio, um, you can really see people working together and finding different shades in and actors' performances over multiple films, that's why it's probably easier to kind of look at that and say, yeah, that, that's a relationship that develops and changes over time. Mm. Well, I've got one that, that's, that's not an actor or a writer or anything. It's, it's um, that kind of uh, the oily rags of the film uh, crew, the producers, the people who make everything happen. Uh, this is spurred on from what we were talking about earlier with the Paul Thomas Anderson episode of WTF, obviously. Paul Thomas Anderson had a very traumatic uh, kind of induction into feature filmmaking with, you know, hassles with making his film Hard Eight, 
mm-hmm. um, which he kind of fought for. And I didn't really know the whole story behind Hard Eight until listening to, to WTF, but now I do. But it was a big stress. And uh, after that, he kind of struggled, but then uh, he kind of fell under the auspices of uh, Mike DeLuca at New Line. Um, and since then, he has produced everything that he's done. And he basically just said that when he was doing Hard Eight, he thought, I'm not going to trust anyone in film again, especially not producers, especially not money men. And DeLuca basically said to him, you know, you can trust me, we're going to make movies together, and that that relationship has proved fruitful. And if you've got someone who is on the business side of it, on the organisational side of it, on the kind of the side that that keeps the whole, you know, oil tanker moving in the right direction... um, you're golden, really, because you know someone's giving you the keys to the kingdom and trusts you implicitly. You're going to do great work. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good example of a relationship where someone essentially acts as a protector, mm-hmm. whereas uh, which is is a kind of collaboration, but very different ones are the, the sort of things we're talking about. Really, it's more about wanting someone to kind of allow you to work uh, and to do the thing you want to do, which uh, you don't really kind of get a lot of opportunities for that in other ones unless you're you you one of your uh actors is someone who can really kind of is such a huge star that they can just let you get to work in the uh kind of uh Charlton Heston Orson Welles relationship on Touch of Evil mm-hmm. where uh people wanted to mess with Orson Welles' work and Charlton Heston just basically um went to the to, went to bat for him and said that you know I don't you may not I don't may not agree with everything he's doing but it's his film so you know, leave him alone, make him do whatever he wants. Um, yeah. Um, what other examples of actors have you got? Uh, the the big one, uh, you know, I think probably one of the most famous is, is probably between John Wayne and John Ford. Mm-hmm. They just can work together pretty much constantly for, for something like 30 years. But uh, I think Ford was one of the few directors who really understood Wayne's strengths and understood that he may have been kind of limited in the sense that he w- wasn't really going to be able to play every character. <laughs> uh, he wouldn't, he wouldn't, be, he had a very kind of set, um, a very uh, limited skill set, but within that skill set, he could find, you know, various different things he was able to get out of him. The, the more kind of clean, the heroic things of something like Stagecoach, where he's kind of a brash young guy and you can really see him uh, as, as kind of very clean cut, but then also, you know, he he got his performance in The Searchers, which is probably the darkest and most complex role he did. Mm. And and if you watch The Searchers um, and kind of think about John Wayne, it is quite a uh, well a role that you wouldn't think he'd take given his politics. Mm. But then also you can read it, you know, conversely. Yeah, it definitely feels like some of um, Wayne's relationship. You can also see this in a sense with his relationship with Howard Hawks. He would work with people often just because he liked them mm-hmm. and he liked hanging out with them. And that's pretty much all of Howard Hawke's last um, couple of films <laughs> it was just him and John Wayne hanging out and remaking more or less the same story over and over again. Whereas I think that level of friendship and trust was there with John Ford, but Ford was more willing to push it and was probably someone who, because they had at least initially they're on uh, opposing ends of the ideological uh, spectrum. Wayne was very right-wing and and Ford was quite left-wing and he kind of got more right-wing as he got older and sort of as he got into Vietnam and things, the the ideas of uh, right and left-wings became a lot more uh, 
confusing to him. Um, I think that he was more willing to push him in places that uh, Hawks wouldn't. Mm. Do you think that um, uh, it's not quite as uh, in-depth a relationship, but do you think the relationship between John Carpenter and uh, Kurt Russell uh, a bit later is is kind of in a similar area? Uh, I'd say so. I think a large part of that is, again, the the idea of it's fun to just hang out together. Mm -hmm. Like If you listen to their audio commentaries... They just clearly are two people who enjoy each other's company immensely, and that you kind of imagine that a certain amount of that probably carried over on set as well. But um, that level of trust is probably what allowed them to kind of uh, push performances in different ways. You know, you can get the kind of uh, stoic uh, action hero uh, stuff of Snake Plissken, but then you can take it into the kind of the dark paranoia of the thing. Mm-hmm. Or just kind of the kind of dumb fun of Big Trouble in Little China, uh, you can really see different shades of uh, Kurt Russell's performances in all of them, and I think that a large part of that comes from the trust of between the two and the willingness to just kind of do anything that uh, they're being willing to do anything for the other. Mm. You don't see uh, a huge amount of double acts these days. Mm. Um, I mean, obviously in kind of uh, the days of yore. Uh, things like Fred and Ginger, uh, Laurel and Hardy, um, they seem kind of like the thing of a bygone era. Whereas you know those those relationships were all about chemistry and and kind of uh, on screen fizz. Um, you don't really get that much of that, do you? No, I think the um, Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence seem to be trying to make it happen, <laughs> uh, but work together on David O. Russell films. And also um, that film for Suzanne Beer that everyone says is awful. Um, Serena, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think uh, it's just a case where a lot of those relationships you could kind of see people, something like, uh, you know, Bing Crosby and, and Bob Hope. A lot of times what you would get is um, studios would just kind of throw stars together. That they would see that something sparked off and then they would just try and make as many films with those two people as possible. Um, which was definitely the way that the the Hope Crosby thing worked with the Road 2 films where they just kept pairing them up as often as possible. Um, And I think that there is less of an interest in that now. I think uh, unless um, partners kind of come up together through theatre or whatever or, you know, stand-up, which is even rarer to kind of get a a double act uh, coming up through stand-up or music hall, which doesn't really exist anymore... Mm -hmm. Uh, I suppose the nearest we've got is uh, Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson. Uh, mm. And having seen the internship, uh, I'm kind of waiting for that partnership to dissolve quite rapidly. Um, have we got any any more for any more, Ed? Uh, yeah, I've got um, kind of some, uh, an earlier example and then kind of two more recent ones. Uh, earlier in, uh, in, in terms of Hollywood history, uh, a big one for me would be Anthony Mann and James Stewart, who didn't make a huge amount of films together, I don't think, but they made films that were very different. Mm. Uh, even though they were often westerns, I think uh, Anthony Mann really saw something, some some darkness in James Stewart that would only really occasionally show up in his other roles, and he really tried to explore that um, as much as possible. I recently watched the movie Man, Man of the West, which is a, an Anthony Mann western um, which is great. It's a cinemascope western which takes place largely inside a ramshackle farm, um, which is is just kind of wonderfully perverse idea of this really big, wide format in time inside a very enclosed space. 
and it's kind of what I hope um, The Hateful Eight ends up being. Mm. But that stars um, Gary Cooper in the lead as a, a guy who's like trying to, he's uh, like a, a former criminal who's trying to go straight and ends up falling in with his old gang again and uh, falling back into his old ways. And I thought, oh, this is this is a really great film. It's really good. And I started reading up on it. And then it said the lead role was originally meant to go to James Stewart. And I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Because <laughs> it's exactly, it feels like a natural culmination or a continuation of the work that they've done together for all those years. You know, he's kind of a, a dark man who's, who's just trying to uh, move on with his life or, or try and escape his past, which is something that feels uh, right for the sort of roles that they did together. And I think that there you can really see an example of, of two artists coming together who really tried to explore something that uh, neither of them perhaps would have been able to explore with other other collaborators. Um, and then in terms of recent ones, I had uh, the, the two um, Scott brothers, Ridley and Tony, both had rela uh, actor relationships that they kept going back to. Um, less so Ridley now, but for a long time, he basically seemed to make only films with Russell Crowe. Mm -hmm. uh, which um, seems to have come to an end, uh, but for a while there, it just seems like they just kept coming back together, and he kept casting him in. You know, first he cast him in Gladiator, and he was kind of big action hero. Then cast him. I think the next time they worked together was uh, a good year, so he cast him in kind of romantic comedies. And even though I would probably say none of the collaborations resulted in good films, in my opinion, um, at least they kind of like worked and did different things each time mm -hmm. uh, and then Tony Scott uh, worked with Denzel Washington sort of five or six times uh, and the, conversely in their ones they uh, kind of explored different things each time because I think because they worked together for so long over almost a 20 year period that they both changed as, as artists and so they were able to uh, uh, in one he may be kind of a, a ruthless hitman in another one he's a kind of harried in two of them a harried uh, transit uh, uh, employees, mm. but they're always kind of slightly more hard-edged action thrillers, aren't they? Mm. Yeah. So the the genres are are pretty much all the same, but I think they brought different things out of each other each time as uh, as the two uh, evolved as a performer and a director, respectively. Mm. Mm. So that's kind of really the final word on uh, special relationships and creative relationships. We've kind of explored all sorts. Um, with kind of, uh, you know, directors, writers, producers, composers, editors. That's pretty much, you know, until we get into kind of like who's really kind of inspired by craft services, uh, we've kind of best boys. run the gamut. Your best boys. Um, which, do you, know, do you actually know what a best boy is, Ed? Um, I don't know, but I know they're good at it. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, the head electrician's uh, right-hand man, so... Mm. Um, so it's so, kind of crucial and you want consistency over multiple films. Exactly. Um, I reckon Scorsese has a go-to best boy. Um, <laughs> uh, whereas, uh, you know, uh, cinematographers, he's just burning through, you know, he would just run them into the ground. Um, <laughs> although that reminds me, like, there's like this kind of story of, like, The Last Waltz where, like, obviously the concert's got, like, eight cameras like filming it and like literally every camera is operated by like an A A triple A star kind of cinematographer. Mm. <laughs> I was just like maybe that was his ultimate dream. He'd employ them all as cameramen, uh, not even director of photography under the auspices of someone else. Um and yeah, be fine. Although uh Steven Soderbergh works with a very similar 
director of photography every time he works. Yeah, Peter Andrews, who's kind of a very mysterious, doesn't really work with anyone else. Mm, like yes. the Coen Brothers editors, I wonder if they know each other. Uh, although, weirdly, Steven Soderbergh is shooting Magic Mike 2, but not directing it. So he's, yeah, he's, he's shooting it under his kind of pseudonym. And editing it under a pseudonym as well. Well, it's all getting very confusing. Um, yeah. I, I really would like to see a film where it's it's shot by Peter Andrews and edited by Roderick James. Mm. I think you just try and find as many possible pseudonyms as possible and just confuse people as to whether or not it's real. Mm. Roderick James got nominated for an Oscar, didn't he, a few years ago? Uh, so that would be the, the, the great pub quiz question, you know, which Oscar nominee didn't actually exist? Him and Donald Kaufman. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. Uh, Robert Towns. Oh, Robert Towns' dog did exist, but he didn't yeah. really. He didn't. Well, he may have written Greystoke. It's not great. Mm, yeah, um, Robert Towns' dog is a great name for a band. Uh, <laughs> I know that Stephen King was in a band called uh, Raymond Burr's Legs, which uh, I always thought was relatively amusing. Uh, but Robert Towns' dog. Uh, speaking of Robert Towns, is he still working on Mad Men? Do we know? Uh, he was working on last season, so I imagine he probably. Did a bit on this season as well because it's kind of one big production. Mm, yeah. But yeah, I don't know how much he produced, how much he did. I just kind of imagine Matthew Weiner had him just sit in the corner and just kind of ask him stories about writing Chinatown all day. Mm, that's what I'd do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's, that's the main reason to hire all those old, old new Hollywood writers and just kind of ask them stories. Mm, which is actually just re- reminded me of something, a kind of a three way special relationship, the old uh, BBS relationship. Hmm. Yeah, producers and uh, directors, which was resulted in some great films and then flamed out. I think primarily because of cocaine, <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, very, but certainly uh, finances and egos played a big role in that. I think what you've just said, you could actually cut and paste and apply to any new Hollywood kind of <laughs> star. Uh, primarily it was cocaine, but then ego and financial troubles. <laughs> Uh, pretty much covers every single burnout you can think of in the 70s. That that could have been the alternate title of Easy Riders Raging Balls. Mm, yeah, firstly cocaine. <laughs> uh, yeah, anyway. So that's that's relationships uh, and special ones and creative ones, uh, all, all, all types of ones. Uh, yeah, not talking about Britain and America when we want to evade someone. <laughs> that's a very special well, relationship. Although that does bring up the relationship between Michael Sheen and Peter Morgan. Who've worked together quite a lot. Who's Peter Morgan? He's the guy who wrote all of the Blair films and wrote uh, Frost Nixon. He's uh, a kind of a playwright who then became a screenwriter, and, and they've for a while he wrote pretty much everything that uh, Michael Sheen was in, in which he wasn't playing a werewolf. Sorry, uh, Lycan. Right. Um, I don't know if you uh, know this, but like Comet Relief has just happened in in Britain, and Michael Sheen was on the celebrity version of the Great British Bake Off. Mm. Um, and during an episode that I saw, he attempted to peel an onion with a potato peeler. <laughs> Which, uh, you know, for listeners at home, is not really the done thing. Uh, doesn't really work like that. Um, and he did kind of make reference to it on Twitter because uh, he'd, he'd done some kind of big speech about education. Uh, <laughs> and he was saying, you know, and it, was, it went kind of viral and it was a, you know, a very worthwhile thing. And he was like, well, for, you know, as a counter to that, I did try and peel an onion with a potato peeler. Um, so, yeah, it's not, yeah, all, I, it's not all, you know, if only Peter Morgan would have stepped in there. Yeah, I think if only they'd written a role for him where he got to play uh, Gordon Ramsay. Mm-hmm. 
then yeah. maybe he would have picked something up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, that's it for us. Uh, I won't kind of uh, like kind of prolong this 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 kind of <laughs> outro any longer uh, by getting kind of uh, sidetracked by things. As usual, subscribe to us on Stitcher or iTunes. Find us on Facebook or Twitter, and just bloody keep listening. Um, we'll be back next week. Uh, until then, it's goodbye from me, and goodbye from me, and goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.